but it is, it is a little bit of a tough sermon today, and because there is some ground to cover, I'm just going to jump into a scripture. No funny story or anything like that. How about that? Just jump right in. Let's look at Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 6, and it will be up on the screen. This is Jesus talking to um, disciples around him, just talking to really believers and those who are skeptical, and he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Okay. What Jesus is doing here is he's talking to people who are going through bad things. And he's telling them, fear not, because the idea of being forgotten, that God forgets us, that he abandons us, or mishandles or drops us, that idea is absolutely terrifying. So he's saying, hey, listen, bad things are going to happen. Bad things are coming, they're already here. But you need to know that you are of high value. Look at the sparrows. And look how they're taken care of. And look how God is in control and understands they're here and they're there. You are of more value than that. That's, that's what he's saying. And I think today we need to hear this because when hardship comes to us and when pain comes to us and when suffering comes to us, we feel anxious. And we believe one of two things. And one is that God has forgotten us. He's mishandled us. He's dropped us. He's left us behind. He's not regarding us as much as we regard ourselves. He's not thinking of us very highly. Or number two, he's absolutely too weak to do anything. Maybe he does see what's going on, but he can't do anything to help you. Right. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a couple books, wrote a few books actually, but one of his books he wrote after his son died of progeria, which is a rapid aging disease. He loved his son very much. He passed away. And Rabbi Harold Kushner went into a little bit of a tailspin, as many, if not all of us, would do if we lost our son to a tragic disease. And when he came out of the spin, he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Not a biblical handling of the truth. Not, did not do a good biblical job. This is one of the things he said in his book. He says, I can worship a God who hates suffering, but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. And listen, he's not alone. I've heard pastors say things just like that. I've heard pastors say, I would rather burn in hell than spend eternity in heaven with a God who programs suffering and pain and hardship into the lives of the people that love him. I've heard pastors say that. So I know that Harold Kushner here is not alone. I think for a lot of us, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to pain, I think our wrestling match is with whether God is good. Is God really good? Because in our minds, I, when bad things happen, we think, how, how good can God really be? Look what's happening to me. Do you, do you see what's happening to me? Do you see the suffering I'm going through? How, how can you be real good? If you were good, if you loved me, this wouldn't be happening to me. That's the age-old, I guess, paradox that I've heard other people say that God either hates hurricanes and really wants to get involved and stop the hurricane, but he's too weak to do it, or he's strong enough to stop it, yet he just doesn't care. He either has a big heart and a little arm or a little heart and a big arm, but he definitely doesn't have both a big heart and a big arm, or else there wouldn't be suffering in the world. And I think if you look at Job's friends, in the book of Job, they take a different angle. And listen, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, we're not going to spend a lot of time teaching it out, okay? But in a couple sentences... Job was a guy who lived well before God. He was upstanding um, before men, 
God looked down, he lived a pleasing life before God. I mean, comparatively with everybody else. And so the enemy comes along. The enemy of our souls. The enemy of Job's soul. And he says, well, of course he worships you. Look at him. He's living large. He's got a bunch of kids. Family life is great. Marriage is great. He's got a lot of money. Everything's fine. Of course he worships you. Of course he loves you. It's easy. Anybody would. But if you let me push on him, if you let me strike him, we'll see how quick he worships you then. So God put him on a leash and let him go. And the enemy did what the enemy said he was going to do, and he struck him, killed all of his kids, hurt his body, put him right on the verge of death himself. I'm sure dinged up his marriage quite a bit in the whole process. Lost, every, lost virtually everything. News got out, and Job had some friends come around him, right? Now, the best thing these friends did was just shut up for a few days. That was the most helpful counsel. Was the beginning of the time, they just sat around and cried with him and hugged. And listen, if you're around people that are suffering and people that are in pain and hardship, that's probably the best thing you can do many times. Stop trying to figure out their problems. Just put your arm around them and love on them a little bit. And they did, and they did a good job. And then they opened their mouth. And then they started to counsel him. And if you were to take all the counseling that they said and that they spoke... And most of the book of Job is the back and forth between him and his friends. If you were to distill it all into one thought, it would sound a little bit like, Job, what did you do to bring this on yourself? I mean, come on. You, I mean, from the outside, it looks like you're living right, but you've got something tucked away, some little project, something, or else this wouldn't be happening to you. Bad things like this, they only happen to bad people. You say you're good, but this is happening, so what are you doing? What are you doing? Listen, this is a controversial topic today, and it will either be very good news for many of you, or some of you, you just might be squirming in your seat. And you may never come back, to be honest with you. In this series on stuff that Jesus never said, you can't teach a series like that and avoid this topic, that this would not be happening to you if you just lived a little better. Are you tired of suffering? Are you tired of hardship? Change your performance. Change your outward mechanical behavior. Improve yourself, and the bad things will go away. You can change your suffering if you just change your performance. Listen, Kushner might say that. The culture might say that. Job's friends will say that. Your flesh and your own heart will even contend with that. But friends, Jesus Christ never said that. Jesus never said that. And understand what I'm talking about suffering today. I'm not really talking about just the big stuff. And that's usually what we think of. We think of miscarriages and divorce, and I've lost my job, cancer, big things. That is suffering, and we've all felt it here, even in our own church. But we're also talking about the small things, like regret, right? That's a fun cloud to wake up to every morning, isn't it? Talking about cold marriages. Talking about being misunderstood, being rejected, being left behind. Envy, being ignored, headaches, estranged relationships, back pain, family junk, low sex drive, loneliness, that thought in your head that says, I'm still struggling with fill in the blank, or I thought it would be better at fill in the blank by now, but I'm not. I can't get over this struggle. When you really think about it, and you're honest with yourself, being human is suffering. To be human is to suffer. We're perpetual sufferers, really. Barry Bridges is a 
He's a very great author, very great counselor, very good pastor. And he contends that every single second we draw in breath and exist on this planet is hardwired and has built into it pain, suffering, and hardship. We get used to it over time. We get used to the headaches. We get used to the knee pain. We get used to the rejection and the regrets and things that kind of follow us through life. But make no mistake, when you really think about it, every moment that we are here has hardship built into it. I mean, life is just more hard than it is easy. We are perpetual struggles. I, I, I agree with Jerry Bridges. And our struggling and our suffering, it makes us desperate. That's not such a bad thing. Everyone in this room is desperate. Everyone in this city is desperate. You're either desperate and you know it or you're desperate and you can't admit to it, but everyone is desperate. And the reason desperation is a beautiful thing is because it's a road that we must travel on to get to the gospel. To get to the God of the gospel, suffering Suffering and being at the end of your rope is required. That sounds weird, doesn't it, when you think about it? The gospel is only found to be good news to people who are at the end of their rope. It's only really found to be good news to those who are totally desperate and they're within big need of a big resolution. That whole idiom, the end of your rope, is the idea behind it is someone throwing you a lifeline while you're drowning and they pull you. And then it slips and it slips and you keep grabbing and then you get to that very last piece of rope and you know that's it. That's the end of your rope. But if you're the person that says, I'm not at the end of my rope. In fact, I don't even need a rope. You could just keep it. I'm not in need of anything. I've got this under control. I'm taking care of. Well, then friend, the gospel won't be of any remedy to you. It's just something that you're going to add on. The gospel really is only for desperate people. Suffering a lot of times drives us towards that desperation. Now, I'm sad to say this that I've been a part of this, but I think many churches, we don't do a good job of handling people who are suffering. In fact, I think a lot of times what the church does is we perpetuate the pain. We keep it going. Now, when I say church, understand I'm not talking about all the pastors in the world. I'm also talking about you, church. I'm talking about all of us that walk alongside and collide with people who are in deep pain and hardship. We don't always do a very good job. Sometimes we're more worthless than even Job's friends are. One of the things we do, there's really two big ones. One of them I'm not going to spend any time on. The second one I am. But one thing we do is we give these quippy little pat answers to people when they're in the middle of suffering and pain. And it sounds really good when it comes off the tongue, but it's just full of wind and it has no remedy or, or medication to it. And what happens is the person who is suffering or struggling, they kind of walk on and they leave, and they're not able to even pull any application out of what you said. They can't extract any usefulness out of the quippy little thing that you just read off a coffee mug or saw on a poster at the gym. They don't know what to do with what you've said. Ever hear that phrase, let go and let God? <laughs> I still don't know what that means, man. Right? Let go of what? Let, let go of the pain? Yeah, sorry, not there yet. Not able to do that. Let go of the situation? I didn't even know I had control of it. Right? How about this one? Time is the best doctor. Any of you ever said that? I've said that before. What does that mean? Does it just mean wait? I think it just means wait. Hey, brother, I'm with you. But listen, time is the best doctor, you know. What does that mean? Wait, wait until something good happens to cancel out this? Wait, wait until you forget about the pain? Wait for what? And people walk away and there's no ministry done. Because we try so hard to fix their situation and the closest thing we can come up with is some weird thing we read somewhere. As bad as we are at that, I think we're worse at number two. And that's where we give law as the answer. 
law, which requires a better performance as a remedy to their suffering. Now listen, before it looks like I pick on law, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. There's no war between the law and the gospel, by the way. There's not. They're both good. They're both from God, and he says they're both good. They just have different roles, and sometimes those roles can get confused. You see, what the law does is it shows you what a cleaned-up life looks like. It just doesn't have the power to clean your life up. The law shows you what a sanctified life looks like lived out, but only the gospel can sanctify you. The law doesn't have the ability to sanctify or cleanse or fix you. That's gospel work. We get the roles confused, and whenever we use law to fix those who are suffering, to take those who have hardship and apply it to their life, it sounds like steps to better living. This is what you can do to where you can have control over what happens, and you can get what you've always wanted. You can get rid of the hardship, you can get rid of the pain, and you can get what you've always wanted if you just change these steps, these outward mechanical steps. Five ways to improve your marriage. Ten ways to not screw your kids up. Six ways to improve your finances. Three ways to put the sizzle back in your marriage. Whatever you think of, there's all kinds of steps, and we love it. As a people, as a church in this country, we love this. Change your behavior, and your hardship will leave instantly. Who doesn't want to sign up for that? Do you want your suffering to change? Change your performance. Check the right boxes. We love it. We love this stuff. Right now as we meet, right now as we're sitting here, 44,000 people are at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, sitting under the teaching of Joel Osteen, right? What are they listening to? They're listening to a man who wrote the book, Your Best Life Now. Your Best Life Now. What he's doing is he's taking your miserable situation. He's saying, you don't have to be there. You could change some things. You could think a little differently, behave a little differently, approach your day a little bit differently, and you, friend, you can have your best life now, right now. That book was on the number one, it was number one in the New York Times bestseller list for over 200 weeks. That's four years, friends. It was on that list. We love it. I want to have control. I want to have control over my future, over good things that will happen or bad things that won't. But in this method of curing our suffering, the burden is on us. We have to do the work. We're the self-fixer. We have to fix self. And the number one commandment, whenever you're self-fixing, is that good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff. So if you have bad stuff in your life, friends, you better get to getting good or getting better to get rid of the bad stuff. That's the number one commandment. So when Joel Olstein, and I'm not picking on him, because he's definitely not alone. But when he comes into a place where someone's suffering, his answer is, is, hey, what are you doing wrong? Sounds like one of Job's friends. Friends, you don't have to be here. You're suffering? That looks hard. It looks painful. You don't have to be here. You could be living a different life right now, a better version of yourself right now. But when Harold Kushner looks at this and he looks at suffering, he doesn't say that you're failing. He says God is failing. It's God that's failing. It's not you. So when Joel Osteen looks at Job, he says, what did you do wrong? But when Harold Kushner looks at Job, he says, hey, listen, cut God some slack. He'd love to help you. He just can't. His arm's too short. Right? The logic behind this law's attempt to counsel us is what did I do to deserve this? What can I outwardly change to make it go away? How can I affect my future by my performance right now? 
But listen, friends, and hear me if you hear anything, that's not Christianity, that's karma. It's not even the right world religion, it's karma. I mean, hear this. I'm going to read the definition of karma to you right out of the book. This is it. Ready? The principle of causality where intent and actions of an individual influence the future of that individual. That's spooky. So good intent and good deed contribute to good karma and future happiness, where bad intent and bad deed contribute to bad karma and future suffering. When we come into suffering as a church, we're more Buddhist than we are Christian because then we, we control our, our resolution and our answer. It's very spooky to me. You know, Jerry Bridges, he has this great teaching mechanism when it comes to helping people see this. And he relates how he has taught this over the years from church to church to church. And it's like this. Imagine your perfect day. I'm going to help you imagine it right now. You wake up. But you wake up like 30 minutes before your alarm goes off right? And you think, you know what? That gives me more time to be with Jesus today. So you shut the alarm off, get up out of bed, and nothing pops or creaks or cracks. That's never happened to me. I crack all the way to the bathroom. But let's say you don't. You glide all the way to the bathroom. You look in the mirror, and you're thinking, looking good. All the hairs are growing where they're supposed to. They're all doing what they need to. Makeup goes on just fine. You look good. You feel good. Take a hot shower, right? You go downstairs, and you're like, you know what? what? Hey, I'm wearing my lucky shirt today, and it's iron. It's going to be a good day today. So you get your, your cup of coffee, and it's like the perfect cup of coffee, right? Straight from the slopes of Ecuador, right to your living room, and you're smelling it. It smells good, and you glide out onto the deck right when the sun comes up, and you study your, your, your Bible because you're right where you're supposed to be in your Bible diet, right? That didn't die in February for you. No, no. You're way deep in the year, and you're still standing strong, one of the only ones left, right? And so you're reading whatever it is in whatever book, and the sun comes up, and you're praying, and God is telling you so much, you can't even read anymore. You have to start journaling immediately, and you're not even a journaler, right? You have all this extra time left, but instead of just sitting out there on the deck, you go in and you clean the house to bless your family before they get up, right? get into your car, tank is full, drive to work, but you decide, I'm going to listen to Christian radio all the way there, and I'm going to memorize these scriptures that I've had, that I've wanted to memorize for such a long time. You're doing that all the way to work, the cars are moving out of your way, get to work on time, you walk in, you see the receptionist there, you're thinking, you know what, I'm going to encourage her, she's cold as ice, but today I'm going to start something new, and I'm going to encourage that woman, you encourage her, she loves it, she starts crying and starts spilling her life out to you, and needs help, wants to know more about Jesus, but you don't have time, right? Because you're at work. So you walk in. Boss is excited to see you. Gets everybody's attention. And lets them know what a great job you did on the Johnson Project, right? You sit down. You start working. You're so excited. You just, you know, you fast through your lunch break because you don't even need it. Because you're just so happy to be with Jesus. And then you get this text in the middle of the day from your spouse, this flirtatious little text. Can't wait to get home now, right? It's the best day in the world. And on the way to the car, you bump into that coworker, the one you've been praying for over and over and over again. And this coworker says, I just need to know what to do to get saved. How do I become a Christian? Good day. It's a good day, isn't it? Think about a different day. This is a day where you wake up late. The birds are not tweeting. Your, your snooze has gone off so many times it can't even decide if it's going to do it again. I mean, why even bother, right? And you get up because you hear the kids screaming. Your spouse is down there trying to figure out what to do. You stumble into the bathroom, not your favorite shirt on. You can't even take a shower because the hot water heater is out. You're going to have to fix that when you get home, by the way. 
right? Go downstairs, now you're uber late. Of course, breakfast isn't ready, right? So you cuss at your wife, cuss at your husband, and the kids hear it, and they run off and they cry. It's exciting. It's a great day so far, right? Slip out the door, step on the dog on accident, because the dog's not where he was supposed to be, so the dog bites you in the leg, you cuss at the dog, kick him a little bit, not like a boom, but like one of these. And your other kid sees it, and they cry and run off. You go into the car, you try to open it, but the, the handle comes off, so you get ticked, and boom, right, the door breaks. You cuss at the door, your wife comes out, your neighbor comes out, they yell at you, you cuss at them, you get in the car, and you start driving off, right? Now there's traffic, because you're late. You know how that is, right? There's never traffic until you're late. So now you're late, so you're thinking, that, that shoulder's looking pretty wide right now. So you curve into the shoulder, you gun it, police officer sees you, pulls you over, writes you a ticket, you cuss at the cop, he writes you two tickets. Welcome to your day. <laughs> you get to work, the receptionist is laughing at you because they can hear the boss yelling about how you're late all the time, and now Jack got all the credit for the Johnson project. He didn't even help on, right? You get a text in the middle of the day. Not saying they can't wait for you to come home, but you have a shopping list for Trader Joe's, right? <laughs> Horrible day. And then on the way to your car, you bump into somebody, someone you've never prayed for. Someone you didn't even really care about. And they ask you about Jesus. Now stop. Those two days, radically different days. Which one do you think God is going to work in? Which one do you feel like God is going to break through in? Jerry Bridges says everywhere he has taught that, nine out of ten people pick the first day. Ladies and gentlemen, that is karma. That is not Christianity. It's just not. Follow the checklist get the life you want. Don't check the right boxes, you're going to get the pain. It's coming. That's what Job's friends said. But now if the law fails at suffering, how do we handle it? I mean, seriously, it gets us back to the same question. What do we do when suffering visits us? We do something. But I think before you even need to know that, where does it even come from? Does God even have control over that? I mean, how long is his arm, actually? How, how much control does God have? I'm going to look at some scriptures, and we are going to move fast. That will be up on the screen. But Exodus 4. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Oh, man. What does this tell you? It tells you God is sovereign over the body. He is in control of everything. He, you were knit in a womb, pre-designed. God is sovereign over everything. That means birth defects. It means genetic mishaps. He has control over dysfunctions, short limbs, no limbs, blindness, deafness. God is in control of not just good things that we thank Him for easily. He is in control of bad things as well. All the affairs of mankind. Listen, this is a difficult teaching today, okay? But it is a biblical one. This is a difficult teaching. I don't even like it. But it's a biblical one. Your other alternative is God is huddled in the corner, wringing His hands, watching the carnage of creation spinning out of control and can't do anything about it because His arm is just too short. He really wants to be there for you, but He can't because He's just God. Can't keep up with sin. Can't keep up with carnage. Isaiah 45. 
I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. And I am the Lord who does all these things. Ecclesiastes 7, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other. Lamentations 3, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Is God in control of all things, good and bad? Absolutely. Absolutely He is. Unmistakably He is. But Luke, are you saying that God does evil? No, He doesn't. That's the thing. We do. We do evil at a breakneck pace, and whenever we get an opportunity to invent new ways of doing evil, we do it. And we perfect it and polish it until we can come up with new ways to do it. But God doesn't do evil. But He does have control over all the affairs of mankind, or he is not God at all. Or he is not God at all. That's why it says in James, listen, whenever you're being tempted, don't say, I'm, I'm being tempted by God because God's not tempted by anything and he doesn't tempt anyone, but it's your sin that drags you away. It's your rebellious heart that drags you away to sin. God never sins, but he has total control, even over birth defects, even over cancer. And Why? We don't always know why. It is for the good of those whom he loves and for his glory, but we don't always know why and why some people are not the other. You know, part of growing up as a Christian is having those questions not answered and being okay with it. That's part of growing up. That's, that's part of Christian maturity is not having the answers to every single question, but trusting in the Lord that he knows. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So yes, God is in control of all things. But can He be totally loving at the same time? So we've established that He's in total control. But this is where Harold Kushner taps out. Okay, Luke, if he was sitting there, okay, Luke, he is in total control, but that means he can't be totally loving. Not at the same time, he can't. He, he might have a big heart, but that means he has to have a short arm. Okay? First John, let's see what God has to say about that, because I think he disagrees. First John 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Now he's about to define what the love of God is, to its depth and to its, its furthest reach. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here we see it. Here we see it. God disagrees with Kushner in the culture, disagrees with Job's friends. You can't have an all-controlling, in-control, in-the-driver's-seat God with a big arm, and you could have a loving God who sees and regards you more than you even regard yourself with a big heart. It showed up at the cross. We have proof for it. Never have we seen suffering in the history of mankind like we saw at the cross. Never. But never have we seen love to the depth that we saw at the cross. God was in control when Christ went to the cross. Things weren't, that wasn't a reaction. He wasn't calling an audible. He wasn't responding to mankind. That was designed since before the universe were even created and the oceans were even poured. He was in control. That was according to plan when the fullness of time occurred. And why did he do it? Depth of love for you. For you. Total control, total love. And here we see it. So what does that mean for us? It means for us that God does not distribute misery 
in proportion to our mistakes. Because we wouldn't be here if you did that. No one would be left. Think about that for a minute. He does not look at your performance and then pull back his love. He doesn't do that. Listen, the gospel is not karma. The gospel stands in the face of karma. Karma says the worst should get the worst, and the best should get the best. The gospel says the worst get the best. The worst sinners get the best. It was when we were sinning that God came to us and found us and recovered us. Karma says that the misbehaving should get punishment and the behaving should get riches. The gospel says that the misbehaving are seen as if they perfectly behaved. Karma says that if you're poor and homeless, that's probably the way it's going to end up for you in the future. The gospel says that the poor are given all the wealth and the homeless are brought into a family. Can you see that grace spits in the face of karma? It's laughing. It's, it's laughable. The gospel looks at karma and says, no, you're not even close to being right. I think step one in understanding your suffering, because I know everyone in this room is suffering to some degree or another. Some of you very great, by the way. And I know that. I preach to a room knowing that there have been great things lost. But step one in understanding your suffering is simply this, knowing that God has a big heart and a big arm. And that He does not retract His love based on your performance. That He is sovereign over all things, both bad and good. You, you, can't, you can't make any understanding or any ground on your suffering until you at least get that foundation poured. You can't. I'm going to look real quick at Hebrews 12. This will probably be where some of you are at in your Bible. I'm going to start in verse 6, and we're going to go through verse 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. Hear it, hear it, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, stop. Discipline was mentioned nine times. Nine times in just a few verses. Nine times. Now, when we say discipline today, it has a different meaning than it did in the Greek when this was written. We say, excuse me, I'm going to go discipline my son. You think he's about to wear him out. Discipline today means spanking. We're going to get a spanking, right? Or a dunce cap or a timeout or whatever you do, right? That's what it means. But back then, it didn't mean that. It had a broader context. Discipline just meant to train. It meant spiritual child training or a child training of some sorts, but usually a spiritual child training. So think equipping, encouraging, teaching, admonishment, reproof, building up, putting together. That's what it means. It changes things a little bit. Endure hardship as training. Endure hardship as equipping, as teaching. 
endure hardship as putting you together to a more mature end. And why does God do this? Because he loves us. So sons and daughters, well, gosh, Luke, it doesn't feel like love. I don't know if I like this kind of love. Well, parent, how do you do it? How do you do it? Because when I discipline my kids, I love them. When I instruct my kids and admonish and reprove my kids, it's out of love. It's not so that they stop being an inconvenience. It's because I love them. And so he says right here, the author of Hebrews, if God doesn't do this, it means you're illegitimate. If you're experiencing suffering and hardship, count yourselves loved. So what does this mean for us? It means that not every hardship or suffering you feel is because of your actions. Some of it it is. Some of you are doing some straight-up dumb things, and it's bringing hardship to you, right? There's a difference between throwing rocks at the bear and having the bear just come out of the woods when you didn't do anything, right? Some of you are doing some unwise things, and you are paying the price for it now. Whether the bear came out of the woods or you're hucking rocks at it, our hardship is part of child spiritual training. It's part of training. God is rearing us to be mature, sons and daughters, and hardship is his sharpest instrument. It's the best one he uses in us. Right? Look at Hebrews 5.8. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Jesus himself. He learned obedience. Listen, he was equipped in obedience through suffering and pain. He, he was put together and trained he learned, he learned obedience through suffering. How much more in us? John Piper says that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, not in prosperity, but in suffering, in pain, and hardship. And what you need to know is that God never wastes pain. Not a moment of hardship comes to you that doesn't have a purpose hardwired into it. He does not waste suffering. And if we zoom in to your suffering moment, whatever it is right now, the initial cry is usually, what did you just do? What are you doing? That's what it is for me, because usually when we suffer, it means something was taken away. Something was removed. Health, money, job, relationship, something was taken away. And a response is, is what are you doing? What, wh why would you do that? But after a while, it evolves a little bit to, I want my old life back. I want the way it used to be before you did this. It hurts. I want my old life back. Tolian totally Chavijan, he says, friends, it might not be your old life you want back. It's probably your old idols you want back. What does he mean? An idol, in, in what he's talking about, if you're not familiar with that language, an idol is not a little wooden thing you pull out of a velvet pouch and burn incense around. That's not what he's talking about. An idol is anything that gives you the value that your whole, or your, just your whole being craves. It might be validation, approval, it might be, uh, I don't know, comfort, security, power, glory, identity. It could be any of those things. And you love the currency that you get from this idol so much. And the idols might be work, a spouse. You can't idolize your kids, your health, your image, your experience, your intellect. You can idolize just about anything as long as the payoff is good. And to keep the payoff coming, you will do whatever it takes. You will give your time, you will give your talent, and you will give your treasure. And we serve these idols, and we live for these idols, and we worship these idols as long as it keeps giving us identity or security or whatever. This is what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. And our hearts are tricky because we'll get rid of idols and new ones will spring up. Idols aren't just for dirty people. <laughs> I have idols. Everyone's got idols. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. He's right. 
idols, they promise to make us happy. They promise to make you happy. Norman Geisler, who's an apologist and an author, he actually responds to Kushner's work, and he says this, Kushner seems to believe that unless everybody is happy, God's not even done his job properly. Is it his all-consuming preoccupation to make everyone happy all the time, or does God desire other good things for his creatures as well? I agree. I think he does desire other things besides just our happiness. I don't think he's just preoccupied with that and that alone. And I think sometimes this is shown in suffering, what these other good things are. Think about it. All suffering is is whenever you've poured your, let's say, you've invested in something and it's taken away, you're going to hurt for it. You can invest in people. If they're taken away, you hurt. You invest in a job. It's taken away. You hurt. But if you're reading the obituaries one day and you hear of someone that dies that you don't even know, friends, you're just not going to suffer that much for them. Why? Because you didn't invest in that person. If you hate your job and you've almost quit like 52 times and then you get fired one day, you're like, whatever, see ya. Why? Because you weren't invested in that job. Your affections were not placed there. Sometimes. And I'm saying sometimes. Hear me, or else I'll get a thousand text messages. Sometimes. Because I know there's different things going on in this room. Sometimes. Whenever you were suffering, and you find hardship in your life, it's God revealing where you have over-invested in things. Over-invested in things, and you've made an idol. You've taken a good thing, and you've made an ultimate thing out of it. And you know you've done that because whenever it's taken away, you think like you can't go on any further. You come apart. You get mad at God. You think he's cruel. On and on and on. Suffering reveals this. Paul Tripp, who's a great counselor, he does this when he counsels people. He says whenever they're in their suffering, how does your present suffering right now reveal what has captured your heart? Think about that. Hey, are you suffering? Are you in hardship? Does it tell you which idol has gone AWOL? Can you see that at all in your suffering? You can, maybe you can. But what are you really leaning on to give you meaning? Suffering reveals it because it's going to bring us to the end of ourselves. It shows us what we need. It shows us that we're desperate and we cannot provide for ourselves. It places us at the end of our rope. It places us there. And it is in this place where we have one hand just barely hanging on to a rope that we find ourselves most, most in need of an ultimate solution. It presses us and draws us right back to God. Right back to God. Think about it. Job, at the end of Job's story, in the 42nd chapter, he says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes see you. Now my eyes see you. What is he saying when he says this? I used to hear about you. Hey, I used to be about the things of God and hear about the things of God. I could see God in creation. I, 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 I thought God was pretty good. I like the idea of liking God. I, I love the idea of loving God. But now, now God has apprehended me. Now I see God. Now I'm right there. I'm with God. I see God. I get God. What's the difference? What made the difference for Job between A and B? Suffering. Pain. And hardship. Think about it. Job lost kids. They weren't babies either. He watched them grow up. He had a lifetime to invest his heart and his affections into these kids. Loved them. Loved them well, too. And they're gone. Lost everything. Lost everything. Probably almost lost his marriage. And now after it is all done, after all the dust is settled, he says, yeah, I used to think I loved God, 
Now I get God. Now I love God. I see God now. Clearly. Though He slay me, yet I will worship Him. Job was at the end of his rope. I think there's a difference. When I look at the story of Job, there's a difference between being set free from your pain and being set free in the midst of your pain. If you're set free from your pain, your prize is just no more hardship and suffering. It's gone. You might not even look any different than you did the day before. But you win the prize because the prize is suffering is gone. But whenever you are set free in your pain, you still might suffer, but you win God. You see God clearly. That's what the prize was for Job. Yeah, Job got rich again. I get it, right? I'm sure his marriage did well. Uh, he got God. That was his prize. He didn't say, I glorify you, God, because you gave me more kids and more cash. Because you brought my health back. He says, I see God. Job was set free in his suffering long before he was set free from his suffering. And I would contend that he probably suffered every day for the rest of his life. I don't care what the other preachers say to make this sound like a great, great story. And he never got those kids back, friends. He just got different ones. He grieved those kids probably every day. But he was set free in the midst of his suffering. So I'm about to end this. I'm looking for answers. Rabbi Kushner, he tells us what our response should be on page 147 of his book. And he says this, your response should be to forgive the world for not being perfect, to forgive God for not making a better world, and then to reach out to the people around us with what I don't know, and to go on living despite it all. Forgive God. That's his answer, is to forgive God. Should we forgive him? Is he to blame? He says in James what we do. God tells us in James, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you, and this is a great promise, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all re without reproach, and it will be given to him. Why would you need any wisdom right then? You're suffering. You, you got trials. Why wisdom? Because how many of us are asking the question, what are you doing? Why is this happening? Why, why this pothole? What, what, what is going on? Do you not see? Have I not tried? Are we not related? What, what's going on? Friend, we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Second Corinthians, Paul deals with the same thing. Three times. He says, I pleaded with the Lord about this. What is he asking for? What is he doing for three times? He's asking for God to take it away. Free me from this suffering. Not in the midst of the suffering, but free me from the suffering, is what Paul is doing. That it should leave him, he says. And that's usually how I pray too, by the way. God, take this from me. I have thorns too, just like Paul, just like you do. Take them from me. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sounds a lot like Job right then. Sounds a lot like Job. Though you slay me, yet I will worship you. Right? This is for your good. It is for God's glory. For God's glory. Talking to two different kinds of people as I 
walk off the stage and the team comes on and that is it. Some of you are suffering. All of you are suffering. Some of you are suffering hard though, right? How is your heart regarding God? How do you see Him? Do you see Him as cruel? Do you see Him as absent? Do you hate Him? Do you forgive Him? Can you trust that He regards you more than you regard yourself? Can you believe that He actually loves you more than you are fascinated with yourself? Can you believe that? Can you believe that He hates whatever is hurting you more than you do? How did He prove it? He came to earth, died on a cross. He hates what is afflicting you more than you do. Can you still see God's beauty in the midst of it? Is God revealing anything to you? Is He showing you an idol? Is He showing where, where you might have just overinvested a little bit and He's drawing your heart back? These are questions you need to ask yourself. I've been asking myself all week these questions. I've not really necessarily loved what He has shown me. I love him for showing them to me, but it shows me how quick I can make idols. It shows me how quick I can see him as cruel whenever affliction does come. Some of you are in here today and you're far from Christ. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and my appeal would be a little bit different for you. You might look down on being desperate and out of control, and I, when I say these things like being at the end of your rope, it bothers you, right? Because you like to be in control, and I did too. I did too. You don't like to be desperate. But I will say that the gospel is only for the desperate. It is only for those who have reached the end of your rope. You are either totally inadequate to be the king in your life and need Jesus to be the adequate king, or you feel very adequate yourself and therefore you don't need Jesus. Right? You're in one of those two places. But the gospel cannot be good news for those who are already doing just fine. It can't be good news for you. Right? There was a day there were many days where I felt like I was totally fine, didn't need a king, didn't need a lifeline, got it under control. But then there was a moment where I found out how desperate I was, totally in need, on my last breath, desperate and very cognizant of how desperate I was. Then the gospel made a lot of sense to me. Man, by God's grace, the gospel is making some sense to some of you today. To some of you today. And some of you need to be counting the cost not just to see the sacrifices that you will need to make in the future as you bear the cross, but also counting the cost means also counting the fact that you don't have any answers left and no resolutions left, and there is only one left for you. So I'm going to pray for you. Go ahead and stand with me as we pray. And if you're new or semi-new here, we have communion tables in the back. And while worship is going, while the songs are going and these folks up here lead you into worship, feel free to go back there at your pace. You want to go back with a roommate, a wife, family, calm group, whatever you want to do to go back there and take communion together. We encourage you to take communion together. It's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of community. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Um, but I'd like to just pray for God healing our hearts right now. So Father, I thank you as we go into worship, as we continue to worship. Lord, I ask that you would heal our hearts you would clear our view that we see you with big heart and big arm. That you are in control of all things, and yet you love us and love mankind more than we love 
ourselves. That you regard us highly. If you regard sparrows and you are in control of every little action, then how much more us? How much more the pinnacle of your creation? We love you, Jesus. And we thank you. And we ask that you work with our hearts. I, I know there are areas where I have not felt like I have forgiven you, even though you hold no blame. I felt like you've done something to me. You've taken something from me. You've been cruel. But God, that you would show me more and more how beautiful you are, and that you've not taken anything from me, but you are training me. You are equipping us, teaching us, and encouraging and admonishing us. And because of it, we are sons and daughters. We are highly loved. Lord, change our hearts. We, this is work we simply cannot do on our own. I've got no steps for better living for them today, Father. I've got no steps for better living for my life, Lord, that you would just change our hearts, that you would put your hands on the boulders that will not move in our lives, and you will move them for us, God, that we will see you clearly and worship you louder. We will worship you out loud before a world who desperately needs to see it, because, Lord, I know the world is just simply not impressed with how we handle suffering right now. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name. Amen.